Explore the night skies with our large range of high-quality telescopes. Whether you're a novice or an astronomy expert, we have the right telescope for you in our Australian Geographic e-store. Explore the whole range and find the right telescope for you today. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. Hi, I'm Angela Heathcote and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Today, I'm talking with Tim Flannery. Tim is regarded as the most important Australian voice against climate change. His best-selling book, The Weathermakers, is the second most read book about climate change in the world. passion and expertise has made him an international face of climate change action. So I'm really excited to be sitting down with Tim today on this episode of Talking Australia. For today's episode, we've left our office to record on location. We're at the Australian Museum and our guest today is a very busy man and I'm thrilled that he made some time for us. Tim, thank you for being with me today. It's a pleasure. Lovely to be with you. Now, you've recently returned to the Australian Museum where this interview is taking place today, um, but it isn't the first time you've worked here. So take us back to the very first time you worked here. Well, I came to the museum first in 1984 and uh, I'd finished my PhD on the evolution of kangaroos. Um, I think I presented myself to the unemployment office, actually. (laughs) They didn't know what to do with me. But there was a job going here at the museum. It was the curator of mammals position. And it was the one job in all of Australia that I really wanted. It's a very coveted role, isn't it? It really is. There was 200 applicants. It was birds or mammals. And somehow I was lucky enough to get it, which was fantastic. And um, I remember sitting down at my desk that was the same desk that had been used by curators of mammals for a century or so, and it had graffiti engraved in it (laughs) because some of them were cadets and quite young. Did you graffiti it as well? No, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't, but uh, you could feel the DNA in bodied in the wood, you know, from those, all those curators before me. And it gave me a sense really of responsibility because the collection here is, well, parts of it are nearly 200 years old. And it's been looked after by these curators, one after the other. And if any one of them had failed in their duty, of course, you wouldn't have that collection. So, so um, it's quite an awesome responsibility, I felt, when I came here. And what were some of the key tasks that you went about doing as soon as you started? Well, the collection was in a bit of a mess, so I had to um, really put some time into working out uh, what we had and um, making sure we could properly identify it and it was properly stored and and so forth. At the same time I was doing that, I was um, fascinated with Melanesia. I already made an expedition, in fact two expeditions, to Papua New Guinea at that point and um, was very keen to go back, so I started writing grant applications uh, to various agencies like National Geographic Society and so forth to gain money uh, to go back and do more work up there. So, and uh, for the next 15 years, that was basically my job. I ended up with a collection was twice as large as when I arrived, which was something that was good. Um, and we had all of the rare and endangered elements all identified and extinct species all properly catalogued and, and put aside so, uh, and safely stored. So that was all good. And does the curator, before you kind of pass on any kind of knowledge? 
No, they didn't. Um, in fact, I barely overlapped with him. He had been absent. He had retired several years earlier. Oh, wow. So, so it took them a while to fill the position. That's right, yeah. So I had his notes and so forth, but um, no... You're on your own. You're on your own, <laughs> that's right. Although, you know, there's a lot of memory, a lot of knowledge in the place. So, you know, the curator of reptiles helped, the deputy director helped. You know, there was a lot of people giving you input. Mm. Now, let's talk about your new role as the Distinguished Visiting Fellow. Tell us what that means in layman's terms. Okay, well, um, I've come back to the museum, first of all, I should say, after nearly 20 years. You know, so it's a long time to spend out there in the world. Very long and, time. Uh, uh, I've come back really because I'm, I've become so concerned about climate change and its impacts in Australia, and I know the power of museums to reach out. I mean, museums are really... There's a big sense of ownership by the community of museums, and there's great potential to actually do something in terms of... Um, making sure that the community understand what's at stake and what we need to do about it. Mm. I've always been wondering about, um, I guess, oh, I've always been curious about how your career as a mammologist and a paleontologist led you to climate change research. Well, it started here, really. It started with the work I did in Papua New Guinea beginning in the 1980s, where I could see that the alpine regions were shrinking as the planet warmed. And um, that concerned me. Uh, it was only, though, by the late 90s when I'd... Up until then, I had a very intense focus on mammals, you know. By then, I was starting to look a bit more broadly and I realised just what a threat climate change was as a whole and realised that I had to actually give up my mammalogy or my single focus on that, my passion in that. Was that hard? It, it was, yeah, yeah, and uh, move on to something different. It's always risky to do that. Um, but I found it was necessary, so, mm. so that's what I did. What were the steps to doing that, going through that process? It was a big, a big lot of research. Um, I'd, I stopped... Um, at about the same time, I became director of the South Australian Museum, so I moved on, and um, I started researching climate change um, much more thoroughly than I had uh, earlier. I put aside two months, in fact, to read all of the back issues of the relevant journals, scientific journals, to understand what was at stake. And um, at the end of that process, I realised I had to write a book um, to explain this to the public. So that took about four years. I did that, and the book was The Weathermakers, and that was it's, it's been the second um, largest-selling uh, book on climate change after Al Gore's in Inconvenient yeah, Truth. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, what were some of those first reactions to The Weathermaker? It was amazing. It changed everything, really, for me. It was, um, you know, published in 23 languages. Uh, on the back of it, we set up the Copenhagen Climate Council, which is business and social engagement um, entity to try to help the Danish government with uh, COP15, trying to get a climate deal done there. Uh, I became Australian of the Year. I then became Australia's Climate Commissioner, so we got fairly deeply involved with, mm. the, with the subject. I want to go back to what you said before about returning to the Australian Museum because you feel like the climate um, there's a there's a climate emergency and it's even more important now to make moves to do something about it. I know the UN report just said that we have about 12 years to stop a climate emergency. I'm wondering, can you go into why you've chosen to spend um, some of that critical time at the Australian Museum? Sure. Yeah. Look, um, the transition that we have to complete within the next 30 or so years is one that will take us from a, a, a carbon emitting economy to a carbon absorbing economy and that's what we know is necessary right, to do that. If you look at our efforts so far um, in terms of reducing emissions you can graph all of the political interventions done globally and everything else we've done and they've had almost no impact. 
right? So we need to actually do something very substantial. So my view of this is that it's going to be multifaceted and the only way I can see to start that transition moving very substantially is to energise young people who are just starting in their career, empower them to understand what's at stake, to understand that the opportunities exist out there for them to build a business that will be part of the solution and to move forward. So one of the big things I'm doing here at the museum is talking to school groups, high schools all around, around Sydney about this issue, to say, you know, you're the people going out, whether you're interested in the arts or the sciences or engineering or politics, it doesn't matter. This transition is going to be part of your future. And if you understand that and see what's at stake, you'll be able to see where the jobs are and what the right pathway is to start um, moving towards climate action. How did you feel about seeing all those youth climate marches last year? Well, they were fantastic. I, you know, I was part of them. I went down and marched through Sydney <laughs> with all the kids. Um, I'm... I'm terrified that if we don't start empowering those people and, and giving them action, then uh, things could get pretty rough. And the reason I say that is that, you know, my generation has done incredibly well out of the world. We've had cheap fossil fuels, we've had a booming economy, uh, and we are, we are the wealthiest generation in world history. And yet, at the same time, we are stealing from our children. And that is something that's absolutely unconscionable. You know, until we start paying a carbon price, until we start making the shift, we'll be stealing from the future of people like you. And I find that totally unacceptable. And as young people realise that, I think they'll get quite justifiably angry. So I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a fair sense of urgency that we need to start moving on this. Mm. And the fellowship goes for a year, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, what, what are you thinking about doing post your fellowship and have you ever considered going into politics? Uh, look, I, I have considered going into politics. Um, I would consider it probably again in the right circumstances, but it is a very, very different area to the one I'm involved with. And mm. I, as I look at... Um, a look at politics and the difficulty of moving. I think there are other people who's got greater skills in that area than I have that should be doing that. Um, for me, it's the corporate sector now that, that offers opportunity. So particularly, um, I'm a fan of uh, sequestration methods and some of the ones that work in sympathy with our planet rather than against it. So, mm, can you go into what those sequestration methods are? Yeah, well, I think one of the best ones is seaweed. You know, we, seaweed grows so fast, we have an ocean, it can absorb a lot of carbon. Um, given the right methods, we can be using seaweed to start drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere and avoiding that climate emergency that you were talking about. We have to cut emissions at the same time, hard and fast, but we've given hardly any thought to how we'll do that sequestration. So that's an area I'm really interested in getting involved with. Mm, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the recent federal election in that it was called the climate election, except we seem to have gotten a government that people have criticised um, for their climate change action or lack thereof. Well, that's right. I mean, the government was basically a small target. They just decided they wouldn't announce any policies, or very few, and that seemed to have succeeded. And one reading of that is Australians are happy with a government of small ambition. Um, uh, that, may be, that may be true. I don't believe it necessarily so. Um, um, I think younger people particularly... Uh, are frustrated at that lack of action. And you see it even within the government ranks itself. Some of the younger members, better educated members, understand that the status quo is just not good enough. We can't... You know, in, in this world, it's like, like the Red Queen. You can't just stay still. You actually have to run to stay still, even. So we actually have to start investing. 
uh, in a big way to maintain our current affluence, our current society. We can't just rest on our laurels. And that's what I, I, the biggest concern for me, for the government. Um, I hope that this government sees that that is the case and starts acting. But, um, you know, that won't happen without a big push from society. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back in a moment with Tim Flannery. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Plus, you will also receive exclusive benefits, including 10% off all products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. I can imagine that, well, you've known about the climate change emergency longer than a lot of people. So I'm assuming a lot of the news these days about some of the impacts isn't really shocking you. But I just want to go back to when you first became aware of that climate emergency. When was that and how did you feel? Look, the full depth of it, of the the crisis, became evident to me in 1999 um, or thereabouts. And I could see then how things were likely to unfold unless we took action. Um, The first real opportunity for us to take action was in Copenhagen, COP15. I was chairing the Copenhagen Climate Council at that time and you know, convening meetings with Ban Ki-moon and with, you know, who was the head of the UN, UN Secretary-General and um, the Prime Minister of Denmark and some of the biggest businesses in the world to try to get action. Um, and when um, that was really sabotaged by the fossil fuel industries through this incredible campaign of disinformation called ClimateGate, um, it was very disheartening. And I, I thought they've won by foul means, these people. They've lied and they've derailed action on climate change. Um, it was pretty tough for six months to get out of bed in the morning because I knew then that we couldn't solve the problem just by cutting emissions. It was getting too late. So it seemed simple to you at first. This is the science. People will understand it. And then it beca- you became aware of this wider campaign to kind That's of... That's right. Yeah. And so this wider campaign was just a very below-the-radar campaign of lies and misinformation and deliberate attempts to derail action. I don't know how those people live with themselves because they are the ones responsible actually for the for the climate crisis we're facing today which is which is killing people and depriving us of food security and making our our, our water um, security ever more tenuous. And so, what are some of those impacts that we're seeing now that um, you know are the worst kind? Well, let's just take our own country of Australia, huh? because that's a good place to start. 70% of the Great Barrier Reef is now dead, right, as a result of bleaching and other impacts. So we could have done something about, but we've sat on our hands doing nothing, letting that happen. Um, we've lost two mammal species in the last decade. Now, a lot of people might not care too much about that, but that's kind of significant, you know, in a scientific perspective. Our major cities are no longer water independent. They need desalinisation to run. So in Perth, half of Perth's water comes from the ocean these days. You fly into Perth and look at those dams on a Darling Escarpment. They're all filled with, with desalinated seawater. And that costs the average person there about... $30 a year. Well, probably more, actually. In Sydney, it's $30 a year. So, you know, there are costs involved in that. But, you know, can you imagine that the rainfall's declined that much over southern Australia that every capital city now has desal that we have to pay for? Well, what was previous a free resource, right? This year, Australia's got to import wheat for the first time in around a decade 
I mean, a country our size has to import wheat. The drought has got so severe and the water shortage is so severe. We've had catastrophic fish kills in the Darling River. Um, you know, it goes on and on. The storm events, the rising sea levels are all going to have impacts. And, and so we're living through this slow climate catastrophe where costs just increase and get pushed onto the younger generation. Right? So I've got the benefits of all that free, f cheap fossil fuel. I'm doing okay, I've got my superannuation in the house, but young people who are struggling now have to bear all of those costs of my affluence as well. It's just wrong. Mm. I have, um, in doing my research for this interview, I, I Googled, obviously had to Google your name and, you know, um, what I found really interesting is the amount of climate change sceptic blogs totally dedicated to you. I feel like the only person who rivals you is Al Gore. I, I'm wondering, what does it feel like to be on the end of that kind of rhetoric that in our days is actually quite dangerous? I'm, I'm talking about the right-wing kind yeah, of that. Sure. Yeah, extremism. Well, I've, I've had federal police protection um, while I was climate commissioner you know, oh in my gosh. house and, and things, you know what it's like. But I've never been impressed with bullies and um, I've never let myself be intimidated by them. So this is a battle, right? And it, I am on the right side of this. They're on the wrong side of it. So there's no going back. You've just got to keep pushing. It doesn't matter what happens, you've just got to keep pushing. Mm, and have you ever had... had I mean, what's your opinion when it comes to engaging with climate change denialists? Is there a point to it or would it be better to target those people who maybe are sitting on the fence? Well, they never make themselves known. They hide in the internet. They, they, uh, they don't come to public meetings anymore. They're just these loathsome um, entities that, that hang around the outside, uh, fearful to say what they want to say in public, but happy to say it online. Mm. I want to go back to what you said about um, uh, you were disheartened by, I guess, the reaction of, by the uh, fossil fuel lobby back then. Um, and now you talk about how it's kind of, I guess, disappeared and people don't show up to the meetings anymore. How has that climate change denialism rhetoric changed over time? Well, you know, when we first started, they denied there was a problem, right? And then they were forced to admit there was a problem. So what they said was that, oh, it's too expensive to fix it. And now, in fact, that it's not too expensive to fix it, what they say is, oh, well, um, uh, why should we bother anyway? Or if they don't say that, they just say nothing and continue to deny uh, the need for action and work behind the scenes to do it. So they say one thing to their kids and another thing to government. They're hypocrites. And, and that is very disheartening. I, I just wish that we could all be in the one room together and that their children could see the lobbying they do that is destroying their future. Mm, so it's become a little bit more clandestine. It's become much more clandestine. They're ashamed of what they do. So one of the things I've always wondered about in regard to your work is you've been doing it for so long are you tired or do you ever feel, you know, just depressed or anything like that? Well, like I said, after Copenhagen was six months of pretty tough, a pretty tough time for me. But How did you come out of that? How, I, I mean, what were the kind of tactics that you had to bring yourself out of that mood? I think it was just time. I'm, I'm a stubborn person, so <laughs> I don't like losing and um, uh, I'm a stubborn. And what we decided to do after Copenhagen was go back to our own nations and, and do what we could. So I put my hand up to be climate commissioner here and, and to push on through that. So um, uh, that, was, that was what I did. And I 
just did that. But it, is, it does feel like a battle and you start getting shell-shocked after a bit. That's true. And you need some young people to come in and lead. <laughs> so. And can you go into a little bit more about, um, I guess, the programs that you're running for young people and how you speak to them and what you speak to them about? Sure. Look, uh, the thing that I worry about most is a sense of hopelessness among young people. I think that's uh, terrible to see. Um, and what we need to do is is to inspire them with hope that things can change, and they can. You know, we have... Look, half of all of the carbon pollution we've put in the atmosphere over all of history has been put up in the last 30 years. If we can put that up in the last 30 years, we can sure as hell take it down in 30 years. We just need to focus with the same intensity on doing that as we have on putting the stuff up there, right? So I tell young people there are whole new industries that are going to be born from the effort to become a, to make a cleaner economy. And they'll be very, they'll be prosperous, they'll be, uh, they'll be great industries to be involved with. So don't get involved with the old polluting industries, get involved with the new ones and bring your genius to bear on the solutions rather than just magnifying the problems. And they range from, from seaweed to sustainable food production to new engineering technologies, new manufacturing technologies, electric vehicles, um, you know, everything. It's all clean energy. It's all going to be part of that mix. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Tim. It's a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening. Until next time.